Our sermon text for this morning is taken from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. This is the word of God. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet set. Untie it and bring it here. <clears throat> if anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You should say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down, the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let's look to the Lord one more time. Father, how dare we, how dare we speak for you? And yet, Lord, you have chosen not angels, but us frail, inconsistent, people still tainted with sin, to declare your mighty deeds. We are earthen vessels, but you, Lord Jesus, are the treasure within. And so I pray that your voice and your voice alone would be heard and whatever is not of you. I pray, O oh Lord, may it fall by the wayside. I ask these things in the name of the living word, Jesus Christ. Amen. The Lord needed that colt. Why, we might ask, does he need anything? He is, after all, the Son of God. But there was symbolism tied up in that colt that harks back to Moses, David, and the prophets. Now, it is true that with respect to his deity, he lacks nothing. But in his work of redemption, he needed a virgin, jars of wine, a spittle of mud, five loaves and two fish, a net cast on the other side of the boat. All of these would be instruments in the hands of our Lord to declare to us his divine origin, power, and authority. For the approach into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he needed a colt. Why? Well, the colt would be used to declare to us that the king has come to bring peace to the nations. 
And so we want to consider Jesus today, and he is much more than what we are talking about today. Remember that. But we want to consider him as king, and he is king by designation. He is king by right of sovereign authority. And he is king above all earthly powers who commands our submission and obedience. There was a lot of commotion on that day when Jesus descended the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley, which begins the ascent into Jerusalem. And for some time, a crowd had been building for days as Jesus was making his way towards Jerusalem. And here, as he entered Jerusalem, they were throwing down palm branches or spreading their cloaks in front of him, far be it that a king would have to put up with dust being kicked up into his face. They were joyfully praising God for this miracle worker. Surely our longing for the Messiah has finally come in this person. Indeed, it had come, he had come, but not in the manner of the expectations of the crowd. So first of all, I want us to consider that he is king by designation. Well, we ask, whose designation? Well, first of all, we would say that it's Moses. As he records for us at the end of Genesis, the blessing of Jacob on his sons and the blessing that, that came to Judah, he said, the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Now the scepter, of course, is a symbol of kingly authority. And this scepter comes from the tribe of Judah. And Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. He was a descendant of David in his humanity. So this business of tethering a donkey to a vine, washing garments in wine, robes in the blood of grapes is symbolic language. We might say today, lighting your fireplace with $5 bills or something like that. Uh, it speaks of untold prosperity and peace which the kingdom of heaven brings now and will someday bring total peace and prosperity universally throughout the entire earth. So he was designated by Moses as king. And then he is designated by David. When David was old, we are told in 1 Kings chapter 1, and unable to rule one of his sons, Adonijah, uh, assumed the throne presumptively. And when it was brought to the king's attention, he said, no, Solomon is the heir to the throne. And to underscore the point, he instructed Solomon to be placed on the king's own mule, the royal mount. Horses were not used very much by David, not until the time of Solomon. And then there was a great procession. 
So continuing with the word of God, so Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up after him playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split with their noise. So this event, Jesus riding in Jerusalem on a donkey, harks back to that day when Solomon, the true heir to the throne of David, was designated and the people proclaimed him king with great procession and rejoicing. The rival to the throne, Adonijah, his half-brother, could not withstand him. And now, here in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, David's greater son rides into Jerusalem, not on a horse as a Roman conqueror would, but on an animal, a donkey, a beast of burden, an animal of peace. He is proclaimed as Israel's true king. Let us also be reminded that God promised David that his throne would be an eternal throne. Jesus is David's greater son. Everyone agreed that the Messiah was the son of David. And those that confessed him as such from their hearts were confessing that he was indeed the son of God, the king who would reign forever. So we have the testimony of Moses, we have the testimony of David, we also have the testimony of the prophets. This event is a literal fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Can you hear the aria in Handel's Messiah? Uh, I'm not a soprano, so I will not uh, scare you uh, trying to sing that. But... Uh, uh, I'm always moved by that particular um, aria in, in Handel's Messiah. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off, this is Zechariah continuing, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. I was reaching for my water, and I lost my place. Excuse me. The king will conquer not by might, but by meekness, not by force of arms, but by weapons that are not carnal. Weapons that are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So we have the witness of the scriptures <clears throat> that Jesus Christ is designated as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. <clears throat> Recorded human history is the story of one conquering king after another. But Jesus is the center of human history, and as such, 
he is the great fact of history to be interpreted. In his hand is the destiny of the human race, and by extension, your destiny and mine. He's not someone simply to be admired. He's not someone who conforms to our sense of the ideal person. He is not some social justice warrior. He is not the sentimentally sublime person graphically depicted in some of our pictures of Jesus. He is not, in the minds of many, the inclusive person, all-inclusive. No, he is the Son of God. He is the one against whom we cannot project our own desires and expectations, as did the people of Jerusalem. We must bend our expectations to who he is, not what we want him to be. I think of a woman by the name of Rita years ago. I can use her name now because she has since passed, but she was part of our ministry many years ago. Came to us through our evangelistic contacts. She started coming to church regularly, coming to Sunday school, even participated in evangelistic outreach. <clears throat> and uh, it looked like she was really fitting in with the body of Christ there. And then she stopped coming. We wondered what in the world happened. And finally, I managed to catch up with her. And I said, Rita, why have you stopped coming? <clears throat> she said, well, I thought if I came to Jesus that he would take care of my rebellious teenage kids, and he didn't do that. And those are, that is but one of many <clears throat> Uh, <clears throat> reasons that people have given to me. I, I, I told, told God to take away my drug habit. He didn't do that. So, Or, as another man said, you know, the sparks just didn't fly. He's looking for some sort of mystical experience. I don't know. No, he is the one designated by the scriptures as the king. He is Christ the king. Contrary to our general culture, there is an authority above every earthly authority, and to this authority every knee must bow. Jesus Christ, the one eternal King of kings and Lord of lords. So he is king by designation, the designation of the scriptures. There's many more scriptures, of course, that we could, we could invoke. Secondly, he is king by sovereign authority. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the people shouted. And they shouted rightly. <clears throat> the one who comes in the name of the Lord is to be listened to. He is to be obeyed. Why? Because he is the king who does not rule by consensus, not even by approbation, but rather as owner and lawgiver, inasmuch as he is the agent of creation as we are told in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. He is the Word that was in the beginning with God. He is the absolute, he has absolute power over our lives. And as king by sovereign authority, you are not your own. This is God's world. 
and he owns everything, <clears throat> including your life and mine, the lives of our loved ones, the lives of those whom we love the most in this world. They all belong to him. You're not your own by creation. In him we live and move and have our being, according to the Apostle Paul. <clears throat> Why do you think the advocates of evolution, a theory for which I think there's been more fraud connected with, in, with it than any other theory, why do you think they're so vehemently opposed to anyone who would dare to question it, even when religion does not even enter into the discussion? Because anything that would dare to give credence to the notion that there is a creator means the end of human autonomy. It means the end of living in any way that we please. We're not our own by virtue of being created in the image of God. We are his image. So you are not your own by virtue of creation. You are not your own by redemption. As a baptized believer, Christ lives in you. Therefore, we are called to purity. Do you not know, the Apostle Paul says, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. It's a call to actively participate in the life of the community of believers. I believe in community. I believe in the body of, of Christ. I could not have lived on the streets of New York for 45 years. <clears throat> in the Bronx, still a very rough neighborhood where the church that we planted is still thriving more than ever amidst the gunshots and other th things that go on on 183rd Street and University Avenue in the Bronx. And the reason, one of the reasons is because of a community of believers who know that they have to stick together, who know that they need each other. But that's the way it ought to be everywhere. The church is not something you go to. It's something that you're a part of. For by one spirit, the Apostle Paul says, we were all baptized into one body of the meanings of baptism, and there are several meanings of baptism. Being baptized into the church is one very important uh, meaning of our baptism. Whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit, for the body does not consist of one member, but many. So we are part of the body of Christ, we are called collectively as well as individually to Christ. <clears throat> so you are not your own is another way of speaking of our Lord's mastery and ownership over our lives. 
For you know, as the Apostle Peter says, that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from our forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The life outside of Christ is a life of bondage, a life of bondage to emptiness and unfulfilled desires. I preached to a bunch of people at a methadone clinic yesterday on the street. You really see the emptiness in the lives there. And it's a great opportunity to speak with them individually, to tell them it doesn't have to be that way. And I've seen the glorious transformation of people's lives from a bondage, a life of bondage to drugs and all the broken relationships that stem from that. So in spite of all the toys and options available to us to fill the void, it is still an empty life apart from Christ. So to be redeemed, and the different words for salvation, the gospel is like a, it's like a multifaceted diamond. You, uh, you, you turn it different ways and it looks a little different. It looks a little, looks different in natural light, looks different in artificial light, looks different in the morning or the evening. All, they all, each uh, phase looks a little bit different, but it's still the diamond. And that's the way the gospel is. There are these different aspects to it. And you and I are called to learn what this gospel is all about. To be redeemed, one aspect of the gospel is to be bought back from slavery, from bondage to sin. To be redeemed is to belong, is to belong to Christ the King. So you are not your own by virtue of creation. You are not your own by virtue of redemption. And you are not your own by virtue of his ownership over your life. What would you have done in Jerusalem on that day of Christ's triumphal entry? I confess that given the nature that I was born with, I would have shouted with the crowd, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And words are fine, but words generated by self-centered motives, are a sham. Sobering thought is, would I have shouted with the crowd in a few days hence, crucify him, crucify him, the same people. Yes, left to myself. I would have been part of that crowd as well. Because Jesus did not meet my expectations. The expectations then of people living in poverty under the oppression of the Roman Empire. Peace and prosperity finally at last and now it's all, it's all gone. We thought this was the guy. Words motivated by what's in it for me especially when it comes to the things of God, 
is a subtle form of unbelief. And that's the testimony of the scriptures throughout, as a matter of fact. As believers in Christ, it is unthinkable to live our lives apart from the directives of God's word. Every part of our lives is to be brought under Christ's authority. He is, after all, Lord. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? He is your king by right. So he invites us, you and me, to come to him. And in that coming, he declares something wonderful. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Take these words. Think about them. And I want you to join me in seeking the Lord to know the reality in a much deeper way that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Sin is like the atom bomb. It's not only destructive in and of itself, <clears throat> there is also fallout. Inasmuch as sin affects people around us, especially those that we love. One of the hardest things that we had in ministry on the streets of the Bronx was, was to get, these are usually men that we were talking with, Get them to understand that your sin has affected your wife, has affected your children. Oh, no, no, no. It's just, it's just me. It's just my problem. Now, sin, you, you know, you don't even need the Bible <laughs> to prove that. You can go to secular psychology and find that. Sin affects people around us. It affects especially those that we love. Broken fellowship with God and broken relationships that follow from that broken fellowship, that is the bondage. That's where the sleepless nights come in. That's where the silence in the home is so thick you can cut it with a knife. Christ has broken the power of sin in his work on the cross so that that burden can be lifted. His sovereign authority is not something to run from, but it's something to embrace. True freedom is being that for which you were created. You were not made for sin. You were made to be the recipients of the grace of God and that grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. So we are talking about Christ the King, who as is the King by designation. He is the King by right of sovereign authority. And thirdly, he is the King above all earthly powers who commands our submission and obedience. 
Note our text in verse 38. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. What is this peace in heaven? Was there war in heaven? Well, as a matter of fact, there was. Now, before the cross, think back at the book of Job. Satan had access to heaven. One day, from Job chapter 1, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth. Somehow, Satan had access to heaven. And then there's that somewhat mysterious passage in Daniel chapter 10. Then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. So there's, there's this warfare in the heavenly realm. But the definitive passage about this warfare is found in Revelation chapter 12. And please, I feel like I need to read uh, a, a somewhat lengthy uh, passage in order to get the full thought. So please try to follow along from uh, Revelation 12. You can turn to it if you have uh, the ESV Bible. There was war in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ for the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea. Because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. We'll, be, we'll get back to that in a minute here. There was no peace in Jerusalem. It would be destroyed in, in 40 years hence. The cross that was soon to follow in a few days appeared to those who witnessed the crucifixion 
as the end of the hopes and dreams of some or good riddance in the minds of others. To the contrary, a mighty victory had been won. How so? Now back to Revelation 12. At the cross, we read there was warfare in heaven. That's the way I understand Revelation 12. Satan was cast down. He was cast out of heaven. He can no longer accuse his people before the throne. And it is a matter of time before his ultimate defeat. He cannot stand before Christ. He has no ground of accusation. He is enraged. And the only way to get at Christ is to make war on the offspring of the woman. Well, who are the offspring of the woman? The church, believers. Satan makes war on the church, but he can be resisted on the basis of Christ's finished work on the cross together with his sovereign authority. Now there's peace in heaven. And meanwhile, the kingdom of heaven is advancing and Satan cannot prevail against it. We work and we long for the day when there will be absolute peace on, on earth. And this is important for the Christian life. When Jesus sent out the 72, they came back rejoicing that the demons were subject to them. Jesus foresaw that warfare in heaven. He replied, this is in Luke 10, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He foresaw that event that would take place at the cross of Satan being Cast out of heaven. He cannot prevail against you when you take your stand by faith in Christ. How do we do that? How do we take our stand against Satan? Well, basically by making use of all the gospel ordinances, of all the means of grace. The word of God is where we start. It teaches us, it reminds us, it exhorts us, it comforts us. Then there's the accountability of our brothers and sisters in Christ, in his body, the church, very important. The ordinance of the Lord's Supper, where we are reminded not only of Christ's death, but also that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, again, where Satan cannot succeed in accusing us, much less can he coerce us to sin. Yes, he can tempt us. Yes, we can give in. But he cannot make us sin. And here, here is believing the gospel in the present moment. The gospel is not just you ask Jesus into your heart and you get to go to heaven someday. The gospel is something to be believed every day. And we're to be growing in our understanding of the gospel. At 78 years old, I'm still growing in understanding the glorious truths of the gospel, particularly recently, more the whole idea of Christ's intercession and advocacy for us. That something that goes on in the present. I'm just really trying
trying to absorb that in a deeper way. Well, after the cross, there would be peace in heaven. There was peace in heaven and glory as the father would be vindicated in the death of his son. The Pharisees reacted strongly to the outburst of adulation by the people. It's not so much that they were jealous, but rather that they were afraid. You know, sometimes it takes only a, a loud noise to trigger an avalanche, and the Pharisees were afraid that such common such commotion, rather, would bring an avalanche of the Roman soldiers down on them as it would appear to them that a revolution was in the making. And they were worried about that. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Well, the stones kept quiet insofar as they rejected their Messiah but the stones did indeed cry out. There was an earthquake at the cross. And then the stones of the temple, again, 40 years hence in 70 AD, they did cry out and lament over its destruction because they thought they could have Moses without Christ. They wanted a mural of religion, not a mirror of their hearts, which Jesus brought to them. But it's not our purpose to shift blame onto unbelieving Jews because our hearts, the hearts that you and I were born with, are no different. Our sinful hearts are, uh, incline us to say that we will not have this man rule over us. But it does not matter what we feel in our hearts. It does not change the fact that Christ is reigning as king now as we speak, and this is a call for you and me to submit in loving obedience. He's not like the earthly rulers who, whose rule is centered around their own self-importance at your expense and who unwittingly are bent on destroying our society by virtue of their arrogance and thinking that they can change laws and customs without regard to God's revealed word and created order. To submit to the true king is the way of true freedom because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Our Lord needed a donkey, a common animal of everyday commerce and activity, not a horse and chariot, but a beast of burden. That colt would be used to declare to us that the king has come to bring peace to the nations. He is the king by designation. He is the king by right of sovereign authority. He is the king above all earthly powers who commands our submission and obedience. We're really not left with an option as to whether Christ is king and his, king, and his kingdom is forever. <clears throat> what is left is whether you and I will bow before him in humble submission and loving obedience. Some fear losing their position or place in the world if they surrender to Christ. You know, it's okay to say in, in today's cultural climate, it's okay to say Jesus is my Lord. He's my Lord and Savior. That's fine for you. 
but to say Jesus is Lord. Those are fighting words. How dare you? How dare you say that, our society says. That's the stuff of oppression. To say that I must submit my personal autonomy to Christ. Many have walked away because Jesus did not fulfill their expectations that I mentioned them earlier. But Jesus can address whatever situation might follow from your initially coming to him. <clears throat> These self-centered expectations were in the minds of the crowd in Jerusalem on that holy week some 2,000 years ago. Human nature hasn't changed. The same kinds of fears are with us today. If I surrender to Christ, I'm going to lose something. But the king reigns and his kingdom will go forward with or without us. And we ought to be overjoyed that Christ is king. We live in a day and age of the most intense individualism ever. You can't enter into my experience and therefore you are disqualified from challenging my ideas about love, life. And for you to try to do that, again, that's, that's hate speech. You can't do that. Add to that a general mix of I don't care what happens to me as long as that doesn't, what happens generally as long as it doesn't happen to me. And that's treason against the king. He is now and will someday fully claim that which belongs to him and make sure that he is reigning in your life. Because it's really great to have a king that really cares about his people. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would expose anything in our lives that would try to hide from you, try to seal ourselves from your authority. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would open up every closet door so that we might know what true freedom is, what true love is, what true purpose is. All these things we pray for your glory, Lord Jesus. And it's his name we pray. Amen.